The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Christy Salisbury, hosts her own program about NDEs called Let's Talk Near Death and another podcast titled Let's Talk Life Design from where she lives in Auckland, New Zealand. Kirsty says she is driven by a passion to live her best life and to help others design their future regardless of circumstances. Kirsty's passion comes from her own traumatic life event when just three weeks after her 12th birthday, she was left paralyzed on her left side due to a rare brain malformation. It turned her world and the world of her family upside down. But with the guidance and influence of a near-death experience, Kirsty began what she calls her second life, one in which she aims to live consciously, filled with purpose and gratitude. Even at such a young age, Kirsty made the decision that this major life event would not define or limit her, and she would, in fact, thrive. In the first few years following her illness, Kirsty dedicated everything to her recovery. She learned to walk again, how to move her arm, and how to skip and jump. She's grateful for her experience and continues to use the lessons she has learned to push life's, life's boundaries. Besides her podcast, Kirsty speaks internationally about purpose and practical how-to steps to create our best life. She believes that while hardship can be extremely painful and difficult, it can also be a gift and something to help us take our life to the next level. Kirsty, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful to have you all the way from New Zealand. We've done a couple of shows from Australia, but I think this is, I believe, the first from New Zealand. Yep, a little bit further, about three hours further. So, yeah, great <laughs> to be on here. Thank you. Kirsty, at 12, you were a competitive gymnast with no idea you had a birth defect in your brain. Yeah, no idea. There was absolutely absolutely nothing for us to believe that anything was wrong. So I was your active little girl. Um, yes, a competitive gymnast with my, my eyes set pretty high on getting quite high up in that, that competitive world. So my whole life was dedicated to my training, dedicated to learning new moves, getting faster, higher, better, you know, down to the food I ate, the time I spent my time. I trained a lot of hours in a week and I was just absolutely consumed by being an international gymnast, I suppose. And yeah, we never knew that anything was wrong. I was just carrying on doing my own thing. Mm. And how did you discover uh, the problem and uh, how did that lead to your near-death experience? Well, it all happened pretty quickly, to be fair. Um, I was training. I hit my head just a couple of days before this happened, probably about 48 hours before it happened. Um, hit my head on the bars and didn't really think too much of it. It was quite a strong hit and I thought, oh, I'm going to get a nasty bruise from that. Or, you know, I thought, wow, that really hurt. But I didn't think anything else was too serious about that. So then, like I said, within about 48 hours, roughly, I started to get a little bit lethargic, started to feel quite tired. And then the very short version is that over the next few hours, I started really deterioration got more and more tired to the point that I just got into bed and went to sleep. Mm. Then I woke up and I had this blinding headache and I'd never really had headaches. I was still quite young. I hadn't really experienced anything like that before. 
And this headache was something, it was just so unique and so specific. And I had a very specific point where the pain was. And then fast forward a couple of hours, I'm on the operating table in the hospital because my parents couldn't wake me up the next day. So normally I was up early bouncing around the house and I was the first one up and about. Mm. But they couldn't wake me up and they thought, oh, she's tired. I had a um, very large competition on the following weekend. So I'd been training really, really hard. And I think they just assumed that I was actually pretty tired and let me sleep in a little bit. But then realized after a few hours that this is a little bit more than just sleeping in. And then it was all on, got the doctor to the house, got me rushed off to hospital. And they found that I, that's where they found, I guess you would call it a birth defect. They're not quite sure where it comes from, but the the chances are that I was born with this. It's like a malformation, a tangle of deformed blood vessels within my brain. And obviously Mm. you can't see within your brain. So you have no idea that any of this is happening. And what had happened was that had maybe when I hit my head, something had just dislodged. We will never know the full story of what actually happened. But the blood pressure was building up and the blood flow was blocked. So, you know, things weren't able to go the way that they should. That put the pressure on the brain. The brain built up and then the blood vessels burst. Then I was having a brain bleed. Um, They operated to remove the little cluster. And when they went in is when I had my near-death experience. So... Mm. On the operating table, I flatlined and, you know, they got out the paddles and brought me back. And it was all pretty scary, to be fair. Um, They didn't really know what or how serious this all was. It's an AVM, which isn't a very common thing to have, Um, very similar to a brain aneurysm, but that's something that isn't there pre-birth. So a very unique thing to be going through. The doctors hadn't had much experience with things like this, especially not in New Zealand because, you know, we don't have heaps of people here. Right. So they're operating on me. They, I flatline. They bring me back. They get me a little bit stable. Then they continue on with the surgery, trying to remove this cluster of abnormal brain cells, which was um, fairly deep within my brain. It wasn't just a surface level thing. The problem was a little bit deeper than what we would have liked. And then um, I flatlined again. And so, again, the big panic, got to get her back. So they brought me back. And at that point, they realized that they couldn't continue the surgery. It was just too dangerous. If they did continue with the surgery, then, you know, I was I was just going to keep flatlining, basically. So they decided to abort the surgery. And I woke up in the critical care unit quite a few days later and I remembered that this I'd had this amazing experience, but I didn't really know what had happened. I, I wasn't familiar with the near-death experience. I, I felt utterly changed. And I know I was only young, I was only 12, but I felt like everything was perfect, exactly mm-hmm. as it should have been, and that I was foundationally changed, like I would never be the same again. Mm-hmm. And I had no clue about anything, you know, my future going forward, I had no clue about how difficult or unusual that journey would be. So my near-death experience was at some point during that surgery, which is what I believe. Kirsty, let me interrupt a second. I think in your account, you said, actually, when you before you were being operated on, you heard a voice saying, don't go to sleep? Yes, I did. How did you take that kind of a warning? I mean, was that something that could have kept you awake? or No, I, mean, I, I could it, not stay awake. I didn't recognize the voice. For me, it was all so surreal. 
It mm. wasn't really making sense, this experience. So the voice came. Um, I ended up, because of the brain bleeding, I had a stroke. So that's where the paralysis came in. I was uh-huh. um, paralyzed before I went into the coma and they couldn't wake me up because I remember getting out of my bed. You know, I wasn't feeling very well. I was thinking I need to get to the bathroom. I collapsed on the floor. And it was at that point I can remember not being able to use my left side to be able to stand up again. Mm. So the stroke and the paralysis had kicked in before then. So my mother came into the bedroom because she had heard me crashing about on the floor. She then took me into another room to help me and stay with me for that night. And I remember it was when we were in the bed together that she'd gone to sleep. The voice was there and it was saying, don't go to sleep. And I was trying so, so hard to not go to sleep, but I just couldn't. There was nothing you know, I gave that my best shot to stay awake. A little bit confused why I needed to stay awake, but it was a friendly voice. I trusted this voice. Mm. Maybe they maybe they just wanted you to stay awake for as long as you could. Perhaps that helped bring you through the uh, entire process. Yeah, do you know, I, I don't know. And I keep wondering, well, what would happen if I had been able to stay awake a bit longer? Oh. You know, could I have averted, have I... Yeah, would things have been any different? I actually right. don't know because I really tried to not go to sleep. Well, but, maybe it was just the effort of trying that they were they were encouraging, even yeah. if they knew ultimately that you would be in a coma. That uh, that this staying alert as long as you could was a was a way to preserve things. Yeah, it was really interesting because the voice I don't even know where it was. It was in my head, but it wasn't, and it was. It was with me. There was no one there to be sharing, you know, this, saying these words out loud. But, yeah, I was hearing this voice, and I tried so hard, but eventually I just fell asleep. And the next thing I know is it's nearly a week later, and I'm waking up, and I'm in yes. the critical care unit. So, Well, tell us about the NDE. Yeah, well, the NDE, like I say, it was, it was very unusual. Um, I had no idea what it was. So I'm oblivious that I'm even having surgery. I have no idea what's happening, and I... I'm suddenly aware that I'm in this dark place. So when I say dark, it wasn't necessarily an absence of light. It was just a place of nothingness. And so I'm in this place of complete nothingness. And it's very hard to get an idea of how long I was there or how I got there. I was just there. And I remember hearing a voice over my right-hand shoulder. And it was my dad's voice which is really unusual because he was alive at the time. Mm-hmm. I believe I understand why he was in my near-death experience now, but it's quite a rare thing to have a living person in the experience at the time. And he's saying to me that I need to, I need to squeeze his hand and I need to let him, um, let him know that I'm okay. And so I'm very confused as to why I'm not okay. I'm thinking, I feel great. I feel fine. But he sounds a little bit desperate. So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to connect with him. So I think, okay, I'll squeeze his hand, you know, and then we can move on. That's all fine. I can't find my hand. So I can't see him. I never saw him. It was like he was just there with me. And so I'm in this place, and I'm a little bit confused by this stage because I don't know where I am. I don't know how I got there. I'd never been there before. I'm feeling my father as if he's a part of me. It was like he was in my ear, but he was galaxies away. And he's a part of me, and yet he's so separate to me. And so he's starting to get quite desperate, and I'm feeling this very strong responsibility that I have to connect with him in some way. 
but I like I say, I can't find my body. I don't quite know how to connect with him. I don't even know where he is. So I decide that I'm going to give everything with it because I have no understanding that I'm on an operating table at the time or in between worlds. I have no idea that I'm potentially dead or very close to death. So I think, okay, this is so important. I have to give everything for it. And it seems very dramatic when I say it, but I literally did a countdown and thought, okay, I'll give my life for this. I have to connect with him. It's that urgent. Mm. So I connect with him. Um, whether I actually did, I don't quite understand what happened there, whether I, it, you know, it felt like a twitch of fingers, but yeah, I didn't have the hand. So it's a very confusing thing for me. Then there was like this bright white light that came and I was in this white light. I didn't travel anywhere. I was just suddenly surrounded and consumed by this bright white light. And it was a very welcoming light. It was very warm and beautiful and I felt very safe in this light. And then I I could feel, it was like vibrations and it was like welcoming and it was all about me. So again, um, very interesting that it was all about me. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like I was home. I was there and they were my welcome party and there were thousands and thousands of I'm going to say beings because I don't even know what they were, whether they were human, whether, you know, it was all very confusing. Mm. So there's this feeling of welcome and it was all about me. They were there to support me. They were cheering, clapping, singing. And I felt like it went on for a very long time, but there was so many beings there. And then I'm just in a state of adjusting from this place of nothingness to this place of white light. And I noticed that all around me are beings that are a lot closer to me and they were my immediate welcome party. Mm-hmm. And there was probably about seven or eight of them. They were completely around me as I'm in this white light. And I'm not aware of anything behind me. I'm just looking forward, but they're all around me. But I'm aware that there's so much going on, you know, all around me, not just in front of me. And so I'm trying to work out who these beings are because they feel very familiar, they feel very personal. And as I look at them, I'm trying to you know, recognize them and I can't recognize them. They've got no features. They mm. had no, I don't know, they, I didn't know who they were, but they were there and it was like I knew them, I recognized them and yet I had no clue who they were. So again, quite confusing. And I'm trying to get more detail from, from them and I'm trying to connect with them on some level. And then it was just, as the harder I tried to connect with them, I felt more distant from them. And Mm -hmm. then I woke up, and that's where I woke up out of the NDE, and I was in the critical care unit. And as I woke up, I just had that feeling of everything is perfect, everything's exactly as it needs to be. And yet I was paralyzed down one side of my body. I just had brain surgery, so I had half a shaved head, a big surgical scar, you know, I had tubes everywhere everything looked very grim and it was very grim because they'd lost me twice so Mm. they weren't really sure whether I was going to come back but I'd had this experience and it was so impacting on me and yet I couldn't explain any of it so I just kind of tucked it under the carpet for quite a bit of time wondering what it was the these beings that had no features um I think I think you've said they were silhouettes at one point. 
Yeah, it was like they were silhouettes because I couldn't see the features. They were. Mm. It was like they were three D silhouettes. Yeah, it was like they were people, but I wasn't permitted to see any feature, whether right. that's hair color, eye color, skin color, what they were wearing. I don't. You know, I assumed they were wearing. Do you wear things when you're a, a being? I don't know. <laughs> they, they were just almost like shadows, but they were very friendly. I was just wondering if they were, seemed friendly because they were uh, perhaps deceased ancestors or relatives of, of yours, or else were they perhaps angels? Well, that's it, and that's what I've always questioned. Being um, 12 years old, I hadn't had a lot of people close to me die. In fact, I'd had hardly anyone so if I, you know, they talk about if you have a welcome party, it's people that you were close to in your lifetime and they're there to greet you or meet you. Mm. Because I'd never really experienced death to anyone close to me, I suspect that they were either angels or people that had died well before my time. And so I didn't have the relationship with them, but there was a soul connection with them, which is where I believe that my father actually ended up in my near-death experience, even though he was alive. So, yeah, it was really interesting. And I obviously asked him, were you there? Were you trying to get me to squeeze your hand? And were you, you know, what was that about? Do you remember that? Because I wondered whether he had maybe had a similar experience and we'd met up somewhere in yes. between. He had no memory of anything. He said it didn't happen. He was very hesitant to talk about anything because it was just, you know, I was, I was in a bit of a state. And it was so painful in my family, obviously, the grief that they went through with me. Oh, and he has no recollection, you know, yeah, because it's not just the near-death experience. You've now got a 12-year-old girl who's just had brain surgery, who's unable to do anything for herself. And, you know, I was having seizures. I was having all sorts of medical things going on. Plus, they hadn't fixed the problems. So when they went in for the brain surgery to remove this little cluster of um, AVM, they found that there were other ones as well. So it wasn't just the one thing. They hadn't fixed the problem. There was the paralysis. I ended up having to have some pretty significant surgery after that. Mm. Not brain surgery because that was going to be too hard, but yeah, radiation what, therapy. Just a matter of curiosity, when you struck your head on that bar, was it in the vicinity of where the cluster was located? It was the around about the right. So it happened on the right side of my brain, which is where the cluster was, but it was deep mm. within the brain. I hit my head on the front and slightly to the right-hand side. So probably... I don't know. I mean, our heads aren't that big. It's it's pretty. Just a concussion. It's fairly close. It. Yeah. Yeah, just, but I d it wasn't even bad enough for me to get concussion. Like it wasn't a really hard hit to the head. You know, I was at school at the time. I went back to class and I thought, man, I've got a headache. But it wasn't anything significant. I didn't go home and say to my family, I hit my head today. I need to sit down. I carried on just life as normal. But yeah. it was it was enough to trigger something. They think just a little jolt could have just flicked something out of place or wow. who so knows, who knows years, whether it would have happened. 12 years, I mean, it could have happened at any time. You could have fallen. It could have, it could have. Know. And then they went on to call me a walking time bomb, you know, because there were other clusters. Anything could happen at any stage. So it was really unusual. We don't know whether that triggered it, whether it was going to happen anyway. There's a chance I could have gone through my whole life and nothing happened at all. So... No knowing, really. When you, now, when you when you were there on the other side, you said everything was perfect and you felt wonderful. Did you f immediately feel pain when you returned to your body? I was so drugged up that I didn't. Um, mm. I 
when I woke up, I just felt like everything was perfect. So my life plan was exactly as it should be. I um I could I felt like I could see things in different places happening at the same time. So I could see my family at home, then they were getting in the car because the news was that I'd woken up. I could see the nurses in the nurses station. I could see what was happening around me. It was like I was extra sensory. I had these abilities to see things which didn't last. They didn't stay with me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I just I had this underlying belief that everything was that that was the plan. This was supposed to happen. So yes, there was grief. I I grieved over my body. You know, obviously being a very active gymnast, and suddenly I can't walk. I grieved over losing a lot of friends because I was the freaky kid. Now is just had brain surgery and dribbles out of mouth, and you know I wasn't the most normal kid from that point on. So I was grieving a lot of stuff, but I you know, I just had to get on with life and I really felt like that was exactly how it had to be. But I also knew that I'd be okay because there was all this risk and this worry about would it happen again? You know, I wasn't out of the out of the woods yet. There were so many things that could still go wrong. But I did just know that everything was okay. Everything was perfect. I wouldn't happen again. I was mm. going to be fine, even though I had to go then go through this journey of recovery, which was the most beautiful thing. It was it was very difficult, and at the same time, I just saw it as such a gift because I learned so much. I, I don't know. I, I feel like my whole experience and everything that went with it was such a gift. And yet, at times, I was just rock bottom. You know, it hasn't always been so easy, but it's been amazing. Well, it is amazing <laughs> that going from being, you know, probably. Uh, having a perfect 12 year old body to being paralyzed and and yet having this uh, enthusiasm for recovery uh, it, it makes it an amazing story now let me ask you why did it take um, 27 years to talk about what you'd seen on the other side yeah it really did um i wasn't really sure whether i would ever talk about it i i struggled to come to terms with what had happened it was very traumatic um, not necessarily the NDE, but the physical journey. And then um, I, because I'd had this experience and because it was on my brain, I did think, oh, maybe I'm a little bit crazy. Maybe I sort of imagined that this whole thing happened. And yet it was such a strong memory. And I I'd got so much out of that near-death experience. So I didn't really want to talk about it because I didn't want to be seen as a little bit crazy. We're talking, you know, it was a long time ago. It's not like now where NDEs are known about. So I I kept it to myself. I didn't really talk about it for a very long time. And also even my um, physical journey. So I got to the point where I could walk and talk and go to the gym. I actually ended up becoming a personal trainer because I was so adamant that this would never hold me back in life. So very fighting spirit that I had. And I created this jail that I lived in where I couldn't be true to me. I couldn't acknowledge my experience. I had to be better and brighter and I had to do more. And, I, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself and this was consuming me. So there was a bit of a journey about actually being able to tell people, well, hey, you know, this happened to me. And I used to need a wheelchair to get around and all sorts of things that went on in my life. And I got to the point where I was okay to share about that. But then I still hadn't shared about my experience. And I knew that I had to write a book. I always knew that was one of the things that I woke up with was I always knew that I'd write a book one day. 
And I just didn't know how I was going to write a book. It was quite a challenge. I wrote that book probably 10 times because I'd forget that I've written bits and then write them again and again. And, you know, I do forget a lot of things. So um, it was really interesting. I knew that I was going to write this book. And obviously, I can't write the book about my experience and my journey without putting the near-death experience in there. So I started to write the book. And I went to my family. And I said, you know, I'm going to share my story. And I'm going to include the full story, not just the medical side of it. I'm going to share the spiritual experience that I had. And, you know, that was a really big thing for me. So I think if I hadn't written the book, I probably never would have shared the experience. And then taking it one step further, I was driving my car and I was halfway through writing my book. I hadn't really finished. I hadn't got to the point where I was comfortable to share what was in it. Mm-hmm. And I literally heard a voice or a download. I don't know what you call it. I feel very connected to spirit, very connected to a higher source of power. Whether it's the same voice I heard that was telling me to stay awake, I don't know. But I often get this voice which tells me things to do or gives me affirmations or directions or something in my life. And this voice said, I want you to go and interview people who have had near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And I freaked out because I hadn't come out about mine yet. We're only talking a couple of years ago, probably about three years ago now. I had not talked about mine. This was not on my radar. I wasn't interested. I was quite happy to stalk everybody in the Facebook groups read all this information and understand that I'd had that experience, but I didn't need to do anything or talk about it. So this voice tells me that I need to go and do this. And I thought of every way that I could get around this. I could do the bare minimum to tick off that I'd done it without actually having to do it. (laughs) So then the voice comes back to me again and says, no, I want you to do video interviews. And so I'm thinking, what the heck? Who the heck am I going to do for that? You know, where am I going to find these people? Why would I do this? This is not how I planned for my life. I don't particularly want to. And this voice just kept impressing on me. This is really important. We have to do it. So I went home and I said to my husband, and he's quite used to this voice as well. He knows that I live by this voice and that I I live very much by what I feel rather than what's potentially practical. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I think I've got a new project. And he just looked at me and I said, I think I need to set up an interview thing for near-death experiences. And he just said, of course you do. Why wouldn't you do that? So I went, oh, no, here we go. And that's how my <laughs> podcast began. And the podcast, you know, I was really like, no one's going to want to talk to me. Where am I going to find the people? How is this even going to work? And we're a couple of years down the track now. It is the favorite part of everything that I do. My podcast and talking to other experiences is the favorite thing in my life. So, again, something that I was so terrified of has become the biggest blessing and thing that I love. Me too. Me too. I understand how you feel completely. It's it's so amazing and so inspiring. And I describe it as because these are such personal and individual experiences. And yet, you know, they, they tell the same story ultimately. It's like yeah. uh, having pieces to a puzzle, and each story is another piece to the puzzle, and it's slowly you, you get the whole picture out of it as, as it goes together. Tell oh, me definitely. about your book. I don't, know, I don't know about your book. I didn't so see anything book, on your website about it. I must have yeah, missed it. You know, that, that's probably me because I'm a little bit afraid because, again, it's very exposing. I feel very vulnerable with my book. Um, so it's called A Life by Design how to design your best future regardless of your current circumstances. And this 
book comes out of the physical journey that I went on. So it doesn't talk much about my spiritual adventures. Mm -hmm. It's the physical journey of going through the illness, waking up and feeling like my life has just fallen apart. You know, I I can't walk. I've got no future because they really just didn't know how well it was going to go. Whether I'd get back to school, whether I'd, I don't know, ever be able to work in a job. You know, I was struggling with the likes. I was struggling with everything. And so it was just this undeniable belief that everything was okay and that I had to just create the best thing out of what I had. And so as I've started to share my journey, I meet more and more people who have been through these massive crisis moments in their lives, some with the NDE, some without the NDE. And the things that we learn in those crisis moments are just life-changing. They're just incredible. And I really felt like I wanted to put together the book of the key things that I'd experienced. And some of them were things that I I felt that I woke up with. Um, Little things like just choosing one thing to work on each day. So when I was in the hospital and I was paralyzed and I was saying, I'm going to run and jump and I'm going to do everything. Nobody's going to know that I was ever in this position. It was choosing one little thing every day that I could work towards and talking about, you know, the one degree of change, how we can maintain one degree in our life, that we can completely change our circumstances. So it's a little bit of a, I guess, a self-help motivational type story. Um, it, It just goes through the main things that I put into my life, the things that I woke up with. And that's how I turned my life around from being in a hospital bed paralyzed to, you know, now doing everything that I do and absolutely loving the things in front of me, but understanding also that our circumstances, we can change them, but there are times when we need to go through really difficult stuff and that is part of our journey and our learning process while we're here on earth. So it comes from a very different angle to what I normally talk about. I normally talk about near-death experiences and death and grief and, you know, this is more of the resilience piece, but it's something that I woke up with that I need. I knew one day I would write this book. And so that's how it is. Um, it is on my website. I don't highly promote it because, again, I even talking to you now, I feel quite, it's quite difficult for me to actually share my own experience. And I'm great to go and chat to all these other people, but well, there's a very big vulnerability piece, I think. Kirstie, it's <laughs> wonderful that you, that you came on NDE Radio and to share your experience with all our listeners. We're, we are out of time for today, but uh, please tell the listeners how they can find uh, your website and uh, your podcasts. Okay. So the podcast is the Let's Talk Near Death podcast. There's also an online community which goes on behind the scenes of that where we discuss the podcast episodes and, you know, there's some community there where people can get the latest things. It's a one central place for all of that information to be. So that's at letstalknearedeath.com. And then you can find more about me personally at kirstysalsbury.com. And if you Google my name, I, I tend to show up because I've got my finger in a few different pies. I'm doing a few different things. But, yeah, Let's Talk Near Death is the main place that you'll find me. That's where I put a lot of my time and focus because that's where my passion piece is, is yes, sharing I, these experiences. I can understand yeah. that completely. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And I might point out that we have plans for me to be interviewed by you on your show yes i can't wait for that lee i can't (laughs) wait to have you on and hear more about your story because we often are behind the microphone but we don't get to share more about us so i'm looking forward to that (laughs) okay (laughs) well listeners for uh, more about the work of ians 
go to IANDS.org and tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.